night. Revelation 17. You know we're getting close to the end when your Bible won't even stay open for you. There's so few pages there on the other side, on the right side. Last week we were in chapter 16 and we went through the whole of it. And when we were there, we saw the seven bowls of God's judgment poured out the way that judgment was handed out in that way symbolically. And we saw really there the end of history. But now John is kind of circling back as he's done a number of times now, circling back to a vision before this judgment. So we've already seen the end and now we're going back in time. Sort of the book of Revelation almost is, is uh, you could think of like a kaleidoscope, the way that you turn it. You're seeing different angles and the different colors of all this looking here at human history toward the end. There's a lot of symbolism in this chapter. Um, I mean, it, we, we could say that, that the great bulk of it here is symbolism, which is going to mean that there's some stuff in here that is strange, um, th- some things in here that at the end of the day are just difficult to know for sure and understand, and yet there's some really good things in here for us to consider together. And so let's just read it, the whole of it, beginning in chapter 17 in verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels, and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. And I saw a woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and to go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom, the seven heads and seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. And as for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seventh, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings, who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the, prostitute, uh, where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. 
They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that is dominion over the kings of the earth. Pretty interesting stuff, right? Uh, if we had to put a rating on this, I don't think that my kids would be able to watch it, right? I mean, this is intense stuff, the images and the language that's here. Um, and even for the book of Revelation, you know, these things have escalated some, haven't they? In verses one through three, kind of this first little chunk here, we see a familiar figure that we saw back in chapter 16. The angel of judgment that we saw, one of the seven, we don't know which one, uh, takes John to show him a vision of this, this woman. And again, figured this is uh, obviously symbolic, and we'll talk through some of it, but some of the imagery is so obscure and mysterious that it's, we, we just have to do our best. Um, even though the, the main picture is clear, some of the symbolism is quite obscure. Um, she, she's not a virtuous woman, is she? I mean, she's described as a prostitute. And the contrast that's going to be coming is going to be stark. Verses 17 and 18 are this, this non-virtuous woman, this harlot here. And then verse 19, or chapter 19 rather, when we get there, is going to be a virtuous, a holy woman, ultimately signifying the people of Jesus Christ. Now, if there were ever a clear symbolism, chapter 17 is going to give it to us. And um, she's called a prostitute. Why? Because of her spiritual adultery. Uh, so often, not just in Revelation, but, but in the New Testament as a whole, and in the Old Testament as well, um, spiritual adultery is often used. So adultery being even that, figurative, right? Speaking of idolatry. Those who have turned away from God, who have gone after other gods, who are not worshiping the one true God, well, there's a, an adultery in that, spiritual adultery. They were made for God. They ultimately are created in God's image, and yet they have rebelled against him and have gone after the flesh, gone after the, the lusts of the world, and so on. And the details of what that was, honestly, is, is less important, but some form of idolatry. And so the unbelieving world, which is going to be a theme throughout this, um, joins with her in her idolatry. So she's not simply on her own, but rather the world in such large measure is going after this sin with her and thus this incredible scene before us. So the Holy Spirit takes John away to reveal kind of a new scene now as we get to verses three through six. And this is probably the most bizarre of the pictures that we're looking at here. It's so strange. Um, the beast uh, that is described here is, is almost certainly the same beast that we saw back in chapter 13. Again, it's been several weeks now, but if you think back to chapter 16, there was a first beast and a second beast and so on. This seems to be um, speaking of the same, same idea here. Uh, and, and listen to the language here. The woman is intoxicated. She's drunk on the blood of the saints. Man, that's some weird stuff. Uh, but but, but th this is meant to be disturbing. I mean, it, we're meant to see the links to which the world has fallen, the, the amount of sin that has developed, and, and ultimately which is going to be um, worthy of the judgment that we just saw last week, back in chapter 16. And if you, and if you feel like this is strange, I mean, John thinks it is too. Look at verse 7. John's marveling. I mean, really, the, the language there is he's freaked out. And the angel says, hey, I, I know this is, freak, this is freaky, but I'm going I'm to help you out. I'm going to explain some of this to you. But think about just the language there, that she's, she's drunk on the blood of the saints. 
You know, throughout history, um, much blood has been spilled by persecution. And it goes back to the New Testament. We see some spilled. And of course, by the time we get to the ancient uh, centuries after the, after the time of the New Testament, it only increases. There's more blood spilled. And um, it's easy for us to forget. But in so many places today, this is still true. That people die as Christians, die for their faith. Um, and, if, and if you're attuned to that, you'd see it all the time. I mean, in places like Nigeria, um, secretly in places like China and, and elsewhere in East Asia, uh, it's just incredible um, those in the last century and a half who have, who have died for the faith. This is not merely some distant historical thing, but it is a present reality. And so, so in a way, I mean, this should, although again, where we live, thankfully, this is not the case, but, but we should not merely think of this as something that happened in antiquity. But this is something that has happened throughout the history of the church, that people have died, given their lives for the faith. In, in verses seven through eight, the angel explains this strange uh, vision that John has seen. The text says, the dwellers of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life. Who are the dwellers of the earth? We see, we've seen that several times in the book of Revelation. Who's this referring to? The dwellers of the earth. It's like people who live in caves or something. No. The unbelievers, right? These are people who are without Christ, non-believers. Uh, when, when um, the question for you, when, when were the names of the believers written in the book? Look at verse, look at verse eight. So interesting the way it's worded. The beast saw, uh, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit to go into destruction. And the dwellers of the earth, so the unbelievers, whose names have not been written in the book of life. Now, ultimately, where I was heading with this, from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast. So the, the dwellers of the earth don't have their name written in the book at all. Right, so they're non-believers. So there's a, there is an exclusivity here, which we can't miss. But listen to what it says about believers implicitly here. Whose names were written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Where else do we see that language in the New Testament? Think of Ephesians chapter 1. That from the foundation of the world, they were chosen in him. Speaking of God's people. I mean, it just, again, it, it boggles our minds because we can't think about sort of the omniscience and the omnipotence of that. Um, but the, the closeness of that, the God, that, that our relationship to God is not merely something incidental or something that we happen to stumble into, but rather God has known us from the foundation of the world. We could give a whole lesson just on that sometime. The saints here, the ones who are written in the Lamb's book of life, they will escape the second death. They'll escape the lake of fire. It will be spared of these things, even as we saw last week, right? All of these, these crazy, frightening things going on as these bowls are poured out. But the believers are spared. The believers are not ultimately susceptible to these things, and as well as the lake of fire, the final judgment. And so as we've seen several times, there is just such a sharp contrast in destinies here, right? The ones written in the Lamb's book of life and those who are not, those who are the dwellers of the earth. Any quick thoughts or questions so far before we move on? We're going to go to verse 9 in just a sec. Okay. And so in verses 9 through 13, he continues to explain uh, this vision. 
Um, now, but honestly, as you read it, did you think, well, the explanation really isn't any more helpful than the first thing that he said about these visions, right? Honestly, it, it's not, it isn't all that helpful. <laughs> um, he's more so giving clues. And so it's like, John, you know, I know that that was really strange what you saw. I'm going to give you a few hints about this. And uh, perhaps John understood more than we're able to, but still a great deal of mystery here, right? And the fact is, this, this little section here in chapter 17 is one of the most difficult in the whole of Revelation. And so that means one of the most difficult in the whole of the New Testament. Uh, very difficult to know exactly what some of these things mean. Uh, we could, honestly, we could spend the rest of the night, you know, a, a few hours um, going through this. But at the end of the day, we're just not sure what some of these things represent, what they mean. Um, we will one day. But yet, uh, right now, we see through a glass darkly. Verse 14 um, these enemies who are probably the empires of the world, um, these wicked, evil empires of the world, uh, we could go through which ones are we talking about? Assyria and Greece and Rome, who are we talking about? That, that would take too much time, ultimately. We're not sure. But these, these enemies will make war on the Lamb in verses 14, verse 14. But the Lamb will conquer them. And look at the titles. Look, I mean, it's explained, so he will conquer them, and this is why. Because he is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And so this just powerful declaration of God's supremacy. He's not merely one Lord among others, but he is Lord over all lords. So a Lord was a powerful, wealthy, influential individual in the ancient world. He is the Lord of all of these, and he is the king of all kings, all that would be ruling government. He is king over them. And so his great supremacy over the world, and as we see often in the book of Psalms and in places like that, that God laughs at those who would oppose him in that way. And so who is with him here in verse 14? Look at the way they're described. They're, they're the called ones, the chosen. Uh, some translations might say the elect. They're the faithful. And so these are the saints. It's the same ones that are talking about that have their names written in the book. And so this is, this is an encouragement. Again, as we, as we go, oh, goodness, what does all this mean? This, is, this much is clear. This is an encouragement to God's people to endure because the victory is coming. Because the one that we serve is the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He's not merely one among others, but rather he is the one who rules over history. He rules over this world. And so this encouragement to, en to endure in a difficult time, we think about the way that Christians have surely found comfort in texts like this throughout the ages, even as I've described the ages and centuries of persecution and even martyrdom, the comfort that God's people have found in the book. Uh, it's just such an, an encouragement. We think of Jesus' words in Matthew 24, 13, that he who endures to the end will be saved. And so he says, endure, hold on, don't give up hope in verses 15 through 18 this unfolds really the destiny of this woman and uh, it's pretty catastrophic I mean the power of the woman is great she's clearly symbolically here again there's this great power uh, emphasized here but all of her allies turn on her did you notice that in verses 15 16 17 this sort of evil alliance that has been put together really turns on itself and ultimately attacks the woman here Tom Schreiner, uh, who's a professor at one of our SBC seminaries and honestly is such a helpful 
commentator, uh, probably the, the easiest to understand, you know, if you're not really deeply, you know, knowledgeable of some of these things, yet you could open it up, and I think very, very accessible and helpful. Thomas Schreiner is his name. He says this, evil ultimately implodes on itself. It is inherently self-destructive. The city of man will collapse under the weight of its own evil and hate. In verse 17, it says, For God put in their hearts to carry out his purpose. So going back to what I was saying just a moment ago, King of kings, Lord of lords, God will ultimately accomplish his purposes. Nothing will thwart his will. Nothing, including men, including the, 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 the movements of history, um, nothing will limit uh, the, the work of the Lord. He will carry out his purpose here even through the hearts of men. And we can talk about what that means and how does that all work out. That even goes back to some of the other things that we've talked about here in terms of chosenness and going back to the foundation of the world. These are really deep, deep things. I hate to just mention them in passing, but, but they, they really are uh, such beautiful things for us to reflect on as God's people. And yet these enemies, there's no doubt they are fully responsible they are fully accountable to God for their wickedness. And so it is God who put in the hearts of men to carry out his purpose. And yet, and we see this kind of language used all over the scriptures. This is not unique to Revelation. All over the Old Testament, for instance. What God did among the Assyrians and the Babylonians and so on. And yet they are responsible. They will have to answer to God for their wickedness. Throughout John's discussion, but especially here at this point in verse 18, the audience would be thinking of Rome. I mean, it just, it would have made as much sense to them um, as, you know, if we had talked about the red, white, and blue and the Constitution, we would think of the United States. Those are things that remind us. So many things here, they're all, they're all negative here, speaking of Rome, they, they would have thought of, of Rome. This unbelieving, carnal world. Well, let me, let me say it this way. So we could go, okay, so all, was all this stuff just fulfilled in Rome? And is Rome coming, or is Rome coming back someday? No, that's, that's not really the point. That's what they would have thought as they saw this with Rome. But Rome is representing something bigger here, again, symbolically here. Uh, Rome, and, and still even throughout the ages of the church, centuries after this, would still often use the, the language of Rome. Uh, it's describing what Augustine called the city of man in contrast to the city of God. Uh, it's, it's the unbelieving and carnal world around us that we live in that we still live in today, the city of man, driven by lusts and ambition, worldly ambition, and, and, and driven by power and domination. These are the things that drive the carnal, unbelieving world. Still today, it was true 2,000 years ago. It represents the things that are opposed to God. And so that's ultimately what is, what is ringing through here as we go through this text, finally understanding a little bit of it as we get down to, to verse 18. But as, the, as, the, as wretched as that scene was going back to the beginning, verses three through six, uh, we are reminded that evil will not triumph, that there's nothing that will oppose God's will, nothing will stop what God is doing. And so the Lord calls us to endure. So as we face trials in this life, as we face worries in this life, as we face fears in this world, still in this city of man, to use the language of Augustine, we must endure because we know that our king, the king of kings, will triumph, come what may. It's easy for us to slip into to fear-mongering and, and anxiousness and all the things that, that, that our flesh naturally slips into. 
And yet the Lord would tell us, stand firm, be bold, I am coming again. Any final thoughts as we, as we close up here or questions? I'll do my best to, to answer them if you have questions related to what we've covered. Anything? See, I miss Bob. Bob always has the best questions. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's close in prayer. And um, Deacon, men, uh, thank you for sticking around. We've got a meeting after, so I'll see you all downstairs. But let's, let's close with a word of prayer. Our God in heaven, what, a, what an intense picture this is for us as we go through Revelation 17. Um, Lord, it's, it's difficult for us to, to fathom what the end of, of the age will look like, having already seen it so starkly last week and now here thinking about, Lord, this other sort of angle, uh, the evil in the world that will ultimately seek to overthrow you and yet God will be um, destroyed. God, I pray that we as your people God, that we would not fear, that we would not allow ourselves to uh, ultimately uh, go into a, a place of, of grief and despair, God, but rather we would find our strength in you, our comfort in you, our confidence in you, not in our own selves, God, not in our own strength, but God, in you, because you are the King of kings, you are the Lord of lords. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. God bless you all. See you next week or see you Sunday.